Boy, I just love it. Baptism Sunday. I hope you're enjoying it too. Great to see people follow the Lord in Believer's Baptism. Just one of my favorite Sundays. And we're glad that you're here today. Uh, We're in a series called Family Hacks. And we're using that hacks. We're defining defining that as a tool or technique uh, that makes a, a task simpler or more efficient. And so God has told us how to do family, and so we're, we're looking up these, these ways to do family the way God wants us to, and that makes all the difference. And last week, we talked about parenting. And while we were talking about parenting, we actually brought up a couple from our church, Carl and Brooke. They both serve here at Grace. They were actually gone last Sunday, but they're here right now on the front row, and we they have been trying to have children and unable to do that in a natural way. And so they are adopting. And so they're in the process, which is quite expensive. I know in a few years, they may also next time around try in vitro. But right now I want to introduce them to you because you guys uh, really showed up last week for them. Carl and Brooke are right down here. Stand up, turn around, wave. Uh, last, yeah, let So last service, I surprised them with our dollar amount that we raised in, in uh, Dollar Club, which was 8600 and something dollars. And uh, so that's cool. And by the way, just since the last service, it's now 9100 and something, so it's growing. So that's very cool. So thank, thanks to all of you that, are, uh, that helped out with our Dollar Club. And that will be open for another week or so. If we, and we want to kind of help get them over that 10000 mark. So... Uh, we'll see if we can do that, and that'll go to the expenses of their upcoming adoption. Very cool stuff. So we ended with parenting, and today we're talking about marriage. And so today I'm going to give you some hacks, some shortcuts, some, some simple instructions to make marriage work. But before I do that, Tim Wilson's going to come and sing a song that's going to do the same thing. All right, Tim, you ready? He's going to come out, and uh, men especially, I would encourage you to tune in because this song contains some great advice for you if you listen close. Hey, honey, have you gained some weight in your rear end? That dress you remember? Reminds me of my old girlfriend Where'd you get those shoes? I think they're pretty lame Would you stop talking? I'm trying to watch the game If you're a man who wants to live a long and happy life These are the things you don't say to your wife That you don't say I planned a hunting trip next week on your birthday I didn't ask you cause I knew it'd be okay Go make some dinner while I watch this fishing show I taped it over our old wedding video If you're a man who wants to live a long and happy life These are the things you don't say to your wife Your cooking is okay, but not like mother makes 
The diamond in the ring I bought you is a fake Your eyes look puffy, dear Are you feeling ill? Happy anniversary, I bought you a treadmill If you're a man who wants to live a long and happy life These are the things you don't say to your wife If you're a man who doesn't want to get killed with a knife These are the, thing, these are the things you don't say to your wife That song is probably inappropriate on a lot of levels, and so if, if, you, if you think that, it's T. Wilson at ohiograce.com. That's where the emails go, just straight to Tim. All right, thank you. Yeah. So marriage, marriage is God's idea, and God gives us the instructions on how to do marriage, and we need instructions on marriage. We need advice on marriage, because when we combine our lives with somebody else, it doesn't always go the way we think it's going to go. And things that we don't expect happen. And so, but with God's instructions, we can deal. We will be ready with action when things don't go the way we expect. So I told uh, last Sunday, I talked about a couple of weeks ago, going bow hunting for elk in Idaho. And I didn't tell you this, but 12 days of hunting all over our corner of the Rockies, and basically I only had two shots. Although we were interacting with elk every day, only had two good shots with a bow. With a bow, you know, it can't be anything in between you, and you gotta be real close. Anyway, and, and I'm gonna tell you about one of them. You ready? All right, so like second day in the evening, me and, and all the guys that we went with are just guys that at one time or another, some have moved away, go, have used to go to Grace, or go to Grace now. And, uh, and so I'm hunting with a guy named David, which is a friend of Jake's, and it's just us two, and we're on an evening hunt, and we're not really that far from our camp. And he's calling, he's a pretty good caller, and we're walking through, and we're kind of hunting in front of us, and, uh, and then he calls in a, a huge cow elk. And she surprised us, so she, she came from downwind, which was unusual, because they can smell you. But she came from downwind, right up, to us, but there's some foliage in between us, so we can't really see her, but we can hear and just see bits of her. And so he's telling me, he's knocking an arrow, he tells me, knock an arrow. This is my second day uh, elk hunting, and so I do that. And then I, I sense the way she's moving, and she came from downwind, but she's coming up alongside of us, and I'm standing in the middle of a clearing. And, uh, and then I'm thinking, oh, here's this little path, she's going to cross over into some open area, and I'm going to have a shot. So my arrow's knocked, I'm watching her, but I'm so intrigued watching her, I'm not really getting ready for this shot. And then she, earlier than I thought, just steps right into this clearing right in front of me. She's 20 yards away, perfect broadside. And she's just looking at me. And she's just staring at me. And I wasn't really ready, and my, although my arrow's knocked, my bow, my bow was down at my side. And so I just froze. So I'm in camouflage, but I don't have anything around me, and so I, I don't want to move, and so I don't move. And she just stands there, and she's staring at me. And then I, I just keep frozen. And then one minute, and two minutes, and three minutes. And I'm thinking, you know, if I move, 
If I try to bring my bow up, she's going to bolt. Or if I try to bring it up really slowly, she is boring holes in my eyes. And by the way, the guys told me, don't, you shouldn't really make direct eye contact. That freaks him out. So I'm, I'm staring back at her like this. <laughs> you know, but I'm watching her. My bow's down here. And then, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, what do I do? Now, the guy I was with, more experienced than me, David, He's out. He can't really tell me anything. He's too far away. But he sees all this unfolding. And so he can't tell me any advice. And I don't know what to do. Do I whip it up fast and take a shot? Do I move super slowly to get a shot? Do I just keep watching? And so I decided, well, I'm just going to keep watching until this elk looks a different direction. Because she's been staring at me now for like three minutes. So I'm thinking, why doesn't she stare at something else just for a second? If she just turns her head, then I'll, I'll pull up and shoot. But that actually never happens. In the meantime, David, who's kind of behind me now, he's not close enough to tell me that, but inside his head he's yelling, shoot her, shoot her. I mean, 12 days of hunting, this is the best shot I had right here, completely clear, no greenery, no foliage, just me and this cow elk boring holes into my head. It was like she was committing suicide by hunter. Like she just stepped out there and said, okay, here's the broadside, take it. And I didn't know what to do. And so I just stood there. And I think finally, you know, after maybe four minutes, this elk thought, this hunter doesn't know what he's doing. And she just turned away from me and you can't take a shot from the rear. And she just walked into this dense foliage and that was it. That was my best shot right there. That's the way it is with marriage. You think you know what's going to happen and you're all planned out for that to happen, but then something unexpected, in this case, it just happens so quick, boom, you're just kind of deer in the headlights and there you are and then you don't know what should I do? Should I zig? Should I zag? Should I do this or that? I didn't really expect this specific situation. That's why God gives us instructions ahead of time in marriage. So no matter what the situation is, his instructions work for us. No matter what comes up, no matter what we didn't expect, God tells us what to do. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Because when things happen... God is answering the question of what we should do. So before we get to the marriage hacks, I want to flesh out the whole topic of marriage. And so the first thing I want to talk about is what marriage is. What marriage is. And that starts in Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24, second chapter of the Bible, super foundational verse about marriage. We know that because Jesus quoted it. Paul quoted it in the passage we're going to talk about today. It's quoted. And so here it is. Genesis 2.24 says this, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So God's design for marriage is, which is controversial today, is one man for one woman and God's plan is for a lifetime. One man, one woman for life. That's what God wants. That's his plan. And so the weird thing about marriage is this. When people gather for weddings, and we do weddings here quite a bit, 
I do weddings. You know, when, when people gather for weddings, I think a lot of times people think that a wedding is a declaration of love. It's a declaration of our present love for this person. But that's actually not what marriage is. That's not what a wedding ceremony is. Marriage, the marriage ceremony, is actually a promise of future love. It's not a declaration of present love. It's a vow. It's a covenant. It's a promise to love in the future. That's what marriage is. And that's what God is telling us right here uh, in these passages. So we in the Western world especially, we are all dialed in on chemistry. I mean, when we are thinking about getting married and we're, we're looking around and we, we see people, it's all about chemistry. We'll, we'll see 10 people and, you know, and we'll eliminate seven of those just because there's no chemistry there or, you know, basically based on looks. And chemistry is important. But what God is telling us is that marriage is primarily covenant. Although chemistry is important, what marriage is, is covenant. It's a promise. It's a vow concerning what you will do in the future. And that's counter to the way we think today. So that's what marriage is. And it's, it's become a little controversial. But if you think that's controversial, next, what marriage changes. What marriage is, and then this is huge, and I think we always underestimate this, what marriage changes. And the short answer to that is us. Marriage changes us, and it's supposed to change us. And what we think is, well, I want to get married to somebody who doesn't want to change me. Well, actually, marriage will change you in itself. When I was in third grade, I got a rock tumbler. Anybody know what that is, a rock tumbler? You know, when you're a kid, you put in the rocks, and then you put in the grit, and maybe some water, and then, you know, it tumbles, and then you go back. And then what happens? You pull out these rocks, and they're smooth, and shiny, and beautiful. You know, the old... That's, by the way, that's exactly what God does to us when he comes into our life. When we become a believer, God starts knocking off all of our rough edges to make us more the way he wants us to be, the way he intended us to be, the way he created us to be. He starts knocking off our rough edges and polishing us to conform to his image. That's what, that's what God does in our lives as a believer. And this is key, God often uses marriage as one of the ways he does that. Anybody know what I'm talking about? God uses marriage to knock off our rough edges. That's part of his process to make us a better person. And why is that? Why? Does God change us, and why would he use marriage to do that? Well, because we're all flawed. We all get things wrong. And it's interesting because when it comes to picking a mate, deciding on who we're getting married to, in our culture, it's all chemistry, but God's telling us some stuff. Number one, he's telling us that Christians 
should only marry other Christians. If you're a believer, you should only marry a believer. God's telling us that. He tells us that in Corinthians chapter 6. And so he's, that's the first principle. But then knowing that when we marry a believer, as a believer, and knowing that God's changing us, we should be getting married with the thought of sort of understanding how God is working in this other person's life. You know, that should be on our radar. So the Bible tells us basically that we're all going to change. God will change us as he comes into our lives. But specifically, marriage changes us. And so marriage changes us in a general way, but marriage also changes us in two specific ways. One way for men and one way for women. And that's what I want to get to. God tells husbands and wives specifically and separately how to do marriage. But there's a problem. The problem is we hate instruction manuals. Anybody relate to me on that? When we buy something, you know, we've shelled out some cash for something, we're excited, it comes in the mail or we pick it up at a store and then we bring it home and we tear through that box and we grab it and we have it in our mind, sort of how it goes together. It's a lot of times not as put together as we thought it was when we ordered it, but we know what we ordered, we know what we want, so we start kind of putting it together, assembling it, and then what happens? A lot of times, right then, we find ourselves either slightly frustrated or highly frustrated because something isn't going together right. You know, you put it together and you have four parts left over. You know what I mean? Something like that. And you're going, what happened here? Or it doesn't look right or it's not functioning correctly. And then what do we do? Right about that time, we start looking around the packaging, right? Where did I put that box? Where is that? Shuffling. You guys are all looking at me like you've never done this. Who knows what I'm talking about here, right? We've all done this. So we looked and we throw those instructions away. And then when we find them, we just hope that somebody who knew English well were the ones that wrote the instructions because that's a whole nother story. But let's just assume that these instructions are written well. This is what's going on with God. God has given us the instructions. Experts over decades have taken from the original languages 2,000 years ago have interpreted scripture into our language so that we can understand it. Our instructions for marriage, and these instructions will help us when the unexpected comes. And here's the deal, and here's what people don't like about it. God takes gender differences seriously, like our culture, for the most part, doesn't anymore. Our roles in marriage are not identical because God created us male and female. And so his instructions for marriage are really to bridge the gap between our gender differences. Marriage gives a way to allow genders to come together and complement each other and strengthen each other in our relationship in marriage. And he does that in two ways. And the first way is submission. And that involves a principle of headship or 
leadership. And so submission is the first thing. And so here's what it says. And, and before we even get to this, because this can be so controversial, I, I want you to think about it this way. So I was hunting for two weeks. I was in one camp with four hunters, three other guys that all knew more about elk hunting with a bow than I did. And then there was another camp and another unit with three other guys. But so here we are. Now, every day we sort of made a plan as to what we were going to do. And I say we kind of generally because I wasn't making these plans. They were making the plans. And I willingly submitted myself to these plans. They would say, what do you think? And I would say, yeah, that sounds great. Because I knew they knew way more about hunting than I did. And so that doesn't mean I didn't have my own ideas. I had my own ideas. What about this? What about that? And once in a while, maybe when we were coming back or something, I would, but it was never the right thing. I'll just tell you. I willingly submitted myself to their leadership. As a matter of fact, one of those guys is right here, John Wookie, and he didn't get an elk probably because he was worried about me getting an elk most of the time that we were hunting. But, so I willingly submitted because I knew they knew more than me. Now, here's what I'm saying. We're going to talk about submission, and, and wives, you know what's coming. I am not asking you wives to submit to your husbands because they, they know more than you do, or they have more experience than you do. That, that's not why I'm asking. Wives, I'm asking you to submit to your husbands because God knows more than you do. And God knows all the experiences that we can experience. And he is equipping us to handle any situation. So that's kind of what's going on. And here it is. It begins this part. And we're going to look at kind of a little bit more in this chapter. But it's Ephesians 5.22. And some people hate this section of Scripture. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the wife is the... For the husband, I'm sorry, is the head of the wife, as Christ also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So there it is, this principle of submission that has everything to do with headship and leadership. So the first thing we might ask is, whether we're husbands or wives or anybody else, is why? Why would God say this? Why would God give us these instructions? And, and the reason that he does that is because anytime you have two people together doing life together, there are always going to be honest disagreements. You might agree on 95% of everything you're doing, but the 5% you don't agree on has the ability to destroy your marriage. And this is a safeguard that God has put in place so that won't happen. And, here, and it's not just on the wives' part. We're going to get to husbands and their responsibility. And basically, that's, since most of you already know it, that's selfless love. And here's the deal. The selfless, the selfless love of husbands and the submission of wives protects marriage when disagreements happen. Now, a further complication here is that most people here in this room grew up in families where that was not modeled well. 
Sometimes a general principle, yeah, okay. But a lot of times the way it was fleshed out was not the best. And then some of you, this is completely foreign, like it is to most of our culture. And so headship is leadership. And, and the way that plays out in a marriage is when, uh, when big decisions come up, that you talk about them, you communicate, you exchange information because God's given you both wisdom and ability to figure things out. So you talk about it. And again, 95% of the time, you'll probably agree on what your course of action should be on any situation. But after you've discussed it with each other and there's still a disagreement and it's a fairly serious decision, then what God is saying is wives yield to your husband's leadership. The husband has the final say. Now, I know when I say that, people in our culture and maybe some wives here, maybe some husbands here say, whoa, that, that doesn't seem right. You're saying that anytime there's a disagreement, the husband gets his own way. Well, no, that's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying anytime there's a disagreement that you've talked through and you've talked about all the information that the wife submits to her husband's headship because the Bible's telling us this protects the relationship, but the Bible also gives us more information on how this works out in a practical way that where wives don't feel the sting of submission. And so... The way God changes husbands is by challenging them to, to self-sacrificing love. And if a husband is challenged trying to love self-sacrificially, then the husband doing that will never use his leadership, um, or he would always use his leadership to put the wife the needs of his wife first. He would never use his leadership to put his own needs first. Do you understand that? So self-sacrificial love requires the husband to make decisions, to make that final decision by putting his wife's needs first. And so here's where that shows up. That's Ephesians 5.25, the next verse says, husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the self-sacrificing part. Jesus died for the church. So how does that work out? So I'll use an illustration. Let's say, let's say Pam and I decided to buy a Harley Davidson motorcycle. All right? So this, this is actually didn't happen yet, but you know, this is just something. So, but let's say Pam and I decided we're gonna buy a Harley Davidson motorcycle. But then I decided we should get a black one and Pam decided we should get a red one. So what this is saying is, what I should do as a husband then is to give in, to put her needs first over mine and get the red motorcycle, unless, I know that people would ridicule her for riding a red Harley David motorcycle. And so I would know for her best interest, we should get a black one. But see, it doesn't matter if it's a Harley Davidson or a car or a truck. You know, the real answer is to buy two, but we're not on the first one yet. But, 
The point is this. The husband then solves the issue. When, when, it, when you're loggerheads, when you can't figure it out, when you just have two honest, different opinions, and you've talked about, and there's no more new information coming in, a decision has to be made. Wives, yield to your husband's leadership. Husbands, make a decision that honors your wife. It's just that simple. And when that happens, it takes all the sting out of submission. Biblical husbands only overrule that means make the decision against their wife's wishes when they're in this spot and they are convinced that their wife's plan or her preference here would be detrimental to herself or to the family. So, so and again, that does not mean that the wife will agree. But if it's done in the context where the wife knows, oh, yeah, he's not doing what I think we should do in this situation, but somebody has to make a decision to protect the relationship, and I know he only made this decision because he's convinced that's what's best for me. That's the way it plays out in a biblical marriage. Does that make sense? You know, there was a lot of responses there, but they were all quiet. Did you notice that? Does that make sense? Yes, yes, yes. I want you to notice something, though. No details are given to these two principles. So God says, hey, marriage, what marriage changes, it changes us. God changes us in general ways all the time. Specifically uses marriage to change us, marriage to change us in two different ways, one for husbands, one for wives. But I want you to notice, when wives are called to submission, to yield to their leadership or respect, and husbands are called to self-sacrificially loving their wives, the details of how that always plays out are not listed. And so here's what happens. This is why so many people don't like this. Um, liberal Christians, would, they don't like this because they would say there should be no, because they bought into culture. So they would say there should be no difference in the roles between husbands and wives. There should be no difference in what's going on here. There's no way that one person should be called to this role and the other that role. And that one is submission makes it even worse. So liberal Christians, they hate this and they deny this truth. But on the flip side, you have legalistic Christians and then legalistic Christians, what they do is they start filling in all kinds of details on exactly how this looks in every marriage. This means so-and-so has the checkbook and so-and-so mows the lawn and so-and-so does this. And, and then they just think it's all set out. Who does what? But that's not in here. That's legalism. That's going beyond what scripture says. So neither liberal people who are call themselves Christians who are liberal and deny some of God's word. They don't like it. And then people who call themselves Christians that are actually legalists, you have to live in this small little tiny lane in order to do Christian the way we do Christianity. Both of those groups don't like this. Because doing God's way is not that easy. It's not just walking around saying it's all the same 50-50. And it's not walking around to say, our marriage has to look exactly like those people over there. It's hard. And because it's hard, that's the third topic I want to bring up. And that is, 
talked about what marriage is, what marriage changes, and next is what marriage needs. What marriage needs. You see, we need God's help to respect and love self-sacrificially. To respect, submit, or to love self-sacrificially. We need God's help. And we get that help through the Holy Spirit. What's really interesting to me is anytime you preach through this, a lot of times people, and they're usually in that first category of more liberal Christians, they'll point to that verse 22 I read, wives submit, and they'll say, you know, the word submit's not in there. It's actually supplied by the previous verse. And in the previous verse, verse 21, it says submit to each other. And so they'll say, you know, it's all about the context, and the context undoes everything that you think that the Bible's saying. Well, that's not true. But the context does add a lot of context to what we're saying. And it also answers this question, what marriage needs. And so I want to pick up the context for you, not just verse 21, but back and begin in verse 15. And that's where the topic changes. And that's where this, what we read today, flows out of. Here's what it says. Therefore, be careful how you walk. So now this is Paul telling the church in Ephesus, be careful how you live out your Christian life, is what he's saying. Living out the Christian life. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but... Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all the things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So that's the context ending with that that one verse. So here's what he's doing. He's writing this whole church in Ephesus, and he's saying, hey, be careful how you live. Live wisely. Live out your Christian life in a wise way. And then he says, don't be controlled by drink. Don't get drunk. Rather, be controlled by the Spirit of God that's in you. And Scripture teaches that if any of us have made a decision to put our trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, that God gives us the Holy Spirit, comes into our lives at that moment, at the moment of salvation. But we don't always live where we're allowing the Spirit to control our lives. We're not always yielding to what God wants. That's why we sin and we do things that are wrong. And so to live wisely... Paul's telling us, yield to God's spirit that is in you. And when you do that, it will show up with joy in your life and singing praises to God with gratitude and thanksgiving. That's the way that you'll live. And then he's saying as a group, and by the way, live with this joy and this praise and this gratitude. And another thing is you need to be able to submit to one another in a general way. And that's true. But then he starts, because there's three categories here, he'll start naming those 
groups of people who should submit to other groups. Submit to one another, general principle, and now I want to start with wives. Wives, you need to submit to your husbands. Children, you need to submit to your parents. So I'm just saying that the submit to one another does in no way erase the specific instructions that follows that. Does that make sense? Again, we're kind of quiet this morning. That makes sense? All right, that makes sense. Yeah, great. So what marriage needs In order to do marriage the way God wants us to do marriage, we need to yield to the Spirit in our lives. We need to follow what God says. We need to yield to the Spirit's instruction. That's why um, all that talk is in there. The context is life as a believer. And some people need to submit to other people to make relationships work. And so why do we need to be Controlled by the Spirit? Because it requires love with action. So over and over, in my counseling ministry over 30 years, I've had people come up more than once, specifically wives, has, have used this illustration to me, which is interesting because I don't know that it's written down somewhere or what. But they'll say, Kevin, I've loved and loved and loved, and I've loved so much, I get nothing back. I've loved so much, I can't do it anymore. I don't have any more love to get. And then they use this illustration, again, more than once. I feel like a sponge that's been wrung out completely, and then it's been set aside, and then it's hardened over the weeks to where now it's just this brittle thing, and, and I have nothing to give. I totally understand that. But as a Christian, that should never be true. Because it's not just a, in this case, husband's love that wets our sponge. You know, it's more that we have God's love through the Spirit gushing into our lives every single day. And God gives us the strength and the capacity to love self-sacrificially or to respect and submit or to forgive or whatever God is requiring us to do, we're able to do it not based on what we're getting back from another person, but based on what God has given to us. Does that make sense? Okay. So you want a shortcut? You want a hack for marriage? There's just one for husbands. By the way, these hacks come from the one who invented marriage. And at the end of this passage in 533, verse 33, it says, that's where they come from. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Number one hack for husbands. Love your wife self-sacrificially. How do we do that? By putting her needs above your own. Number one hack. You only need one. Just do this one thing. Love your wife self-sacrificially. How do I do that? By putting her needs ahead of your own. And then wife, just one hack, and it's different. Wife, submit to your husbands or respect your husbands by yielding to his leadership. One hack, wives, respect your husbands by yielding to his leadership. Now, because God just boils it down to these one 
these two one things, one for wife, one for husband, I believe because he's our creator, it's because he knows men need to be respected and women need to be cherished. And this is what we need to do to make marriage work. But then there's one last thing. What marriage is, what marriage changes, what marriage needs, and then last is what marriage shows. If you've ever read this passage about marriage in Ephesians 5, you might wonder, God, why did you sort of entwine the subject of marriage with Christ and the church? And it's just a little bit confusing. Why did all that happen? What marriage shows? Marriage points to the ultimate relationship, which is our relationship with God through Jesus. That's why Paul uses the language that he uses. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 25, and I'm going to read this passage that, that maybe it didn't seem that clear to you. Here's what it says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then it continues. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. And then the quote, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So you ever wonder, why is this language in here when we're giving this practical illustration of how to do marriage? Well, it's because we need God's Spirit, but now what it shows is marriage is really a picture for us to understand our relationship with God better. That Christ is the husband who died, who gave himself, who gave his life in order to self-sacrificially love us and that we should submit to him. That's the picture. That's, that's what it's telling us. Those of us who have given our lives to Christ, we're called the bride of Christ. And we're not great spouses, not great wives. Jesus had to die for us. See, when we receive the gospel, the good news, that we know we're messed up and we've sinned, but Jesus died to make a way for us, and that if we put our faith in Jesus alone, that we can be saved from our just punishment. You know, that's the gospel, the good news. But remember, Jesus had to die, give up his life to make that happen. And that's the sacrificial, that's the sacrificial love that we husbands are to model to our wives. And so anytime we're making decisions, whether what color the Harley should be, or I guess we should maybe even back that up to whether we should even buy a Harley, notice I'm not there yet. We have to factor into that 
How are we loving self-sacrificially in this decision? So the way we're going to close today is Kim's going to come out and lead us in this song that we've been singing. Let me tell you about my Savior, which is a great song. But during this song, I, I want to challenge you to either commit or recommit. I mean, some of you, you've grown up hearing this all your life, but we get sloppy in our marriages, and it's time to recommit to doing what God's called us to do in marriage. Some of you, you've grown up in our culture, and this is all kind of new. You've become a believer, and this is new-sounding stuff. It's time to commit to not follow our culture, but follow our Savior who died for us. And so during this song, some people will be singing, but you need to make sure you're committed. And you could come up front or stay where you're at, but don't let this moment pass without yielding to God's leadership in your life. Let's stand together. Father God, we thank you for loving us, giving us the instructions that we desperately need for every area of our life, including marriage. Lord, help us to follow you, your leadership, in Christ's name.